The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. Russia, if you're listening, this is Thursday, June 13th, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. The President of the United States has just invited foreign help for his 2020 campaign. Last night, he told ABC News he would accept dirt on a political opponent from a foreign government and that he sees no reason to notify the FBI if he gets such an offer. After two years of investigating him for that very thing, Trump was saying he would do that very thing. The president, who denies he got foreign help in 2016, is now saying he would welcome it in the 2020 race. After Robert Mueller found evidence that the Trump 2016 campaign had accepted help from Russia, he concluded that the government could not prove an agreed-upon conspiracy in court. Mueller concluded that despite the federal campaign laws being broken, criminal intent could not be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. There was no actual evidence that Trump campaign officials knew that they were breaking the law, so a conspiracy charge would never stick. After two years of investigations, everyone, including the president, has now learned that accepting foreign help for a political campaign is a crime. So it is then clearly with criminal intent that the president has said he's open to getting foreign campaign help for his 2020 campaign. And he said that on the same day that an expert witness brought into a congressional hearing by Republicans to discredit the Mueller probe told lawmakers that a candidate who is offered foreign help must report it to the FBI or intelligence officials or face the prospect of being compromised and controlled by that foreign government. FBI Director Chris Wray told Congress last month, quote, the FBI would want to know about foreign election meddling. The FBI director is wrong, Trump told ABC last night. There isn't anything wrong with listening, Trump told ABC, adding, if somebody called from a country, we have information on your opponent, oh, I think we'd want to hear it. It's not an interference, said Trump, continuing, they have information? I think I'd take it. Just as when Donald Trump Jr. wrote in 2016 in an email about a Russian offer of dirt on Hillary Clinton, if it's what you say, I love it. Meanwhile, we're still dealing with the consequences of 2016, and now facing a fork in the road. This way to impeachment, that way to let the clock run out and start fresh in 2020. The argument for impeachment is that if we let one person break laws to get elected president and then they break laws as president, what's to stop the next candidate or the next president from also breaking the law without fear of punishment? What message will it send to our children and their children that we could have acted but didn't fearing we might cause him to be elected again. And what might this president do or cause to happen in the 20 months remaining in his term? And there are plentiful grounds for impeachment. The New York Times editorial board drew up three articles of impeachment based on the three that were filed against Richard Nixon. Columnist Max Boot at the Washington Post drew up seven impeachment articles. Violating his oath to uphold the laws and constitution by firing Comey, trying to curtail the Mueller investigation, ordering a White House counsel to lie in the official records, four counts of witness tampering, one each for Mike Flynn, Paul Manafort, Roger Stone, and Michael Cohen. And that's just in Boots' first article of impeachment. There are six others, including 
His second article, accepting campaign help from Russia without reporting it, never investigating the Russian attack, and believing Putin over U.S. intelligence. Trump's latest attack on intelligence now has Attorney General William Barr interviewing CIA agents about how they conducted their investigation of Russian interference. The list goes on, from emoluments to refusing to be forthcoming with Congress. Elizabeth Warren may have said it best when she said, quote, Part one, a hostile foreign government attacked our 2016 elections for the purpose of getting Donald Trump elected. Part two, then-candidate Donald Trump welcomed that help. And part three, when the federal government tried to investigate, Donald Trump as president delayed, deflected, moved, fired, and did everything he could to obstruct justice. To which Warren added, if he were any other person in the United States, based on what's documented in that report, he would be carried out in handcuffs. Yes, there are grounds for impeachment, with calls flooding lawmakers' offices demanding that. There'll be impeachment rallies this Saturday in cities across the country. Presidential candidates and a growing number in Congress are calling for impeachment. So there is a momentum for it. And someday, we'll all be called upon to tell what we did or didn't do about it. The argument against impeachment says it could backfire in a way that gets him reelected, a victimized Trump seemingly exonerated by his mostly Republican Senate a month or so before the election. If that were to happen, imagine his state of mind and his agenda in those four years, those additional four years. Impeachment without widespread agreement on a specific crime further divides the country, and that's not good for the kids either. So what are Trump's reelection chances if... Congress investigated but didn't impeach. A new Quinnipiac poll shows Trump losing to six of the Democrats running against him and that he would lose to Joe Biden by a landslide, 13 points. Ouch, that's got to hurt. And it's why Trump is hurling insults at Biden at every turn. But both Pete Buttigieg and Cory Booker would beat Trump by five points each. Elizabeth Warren beats Trump by seven, Kamala Harris by eight, and Bernie Sanders by nine. That's if the election were held today. It's actually a year and a half from now, although the first Democratic debates are now less than two weeks away. A lot can happen in that year and a half, and it will likely start with those first debates. In the meantime, Trump is feeling the pain of being on the deeply losing side of those candidate polls. The New York Times reported that Trump told his aides to deny that his campaign's internal polling was more bad news. The internal polling reportedly found Trump trailing even in Texas and most of the Rust Belt states. The Times says Trump told his aides to say that other data shows him doing well. And while we cannot see those internal numbers, we can see these. Trump's disapproval ratings in the key battleground states are way over 50% in New Hampshire, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Iowa. It's 52% disapproval for Trump in Pennsylvania, 51 in Arizona, 50 in Ohio and North Carolina, and almost a 50 in Florida. All states he needs to win the Electoral College, without an impeachment hearing, that is. Whether we fail to act or act and fail... Future candidates and future presidents and our kids will see that running for president and getting elected is a way to break the law without consequence. That's the advanced ethics question now facing the House Democrats' class of 2019. Calls pour into their offices, overwhelmingly demanding impeachment, while their clever and seasoned House Speaker Nancy Pelosi demands they hold off until the public is swayed by investigative evidence. By the numbers, congressional Democrats are as uncertain as they are divided. 
And while Congress and the rest of us ponder all of this, Trump remains president, mostly unchecked and arguably unhinged. Donald Trump is both attracted to and frightened of impeachment. Like a moth that wants the light of the flame but doesn't want to get burned, so is Trump to impeachment. Impeachment intrigues him in that he remembers how Clinton's popularity grew when an effort to impeach him failed in the Senate. Trump believes an impeachment will make him a hero to his base, and he is always drawn to a fight like a moth to a flame. Of course, he also fears getting burned. Aides tell the Washington Post Trump believes he's done nothing wrong. There's never been anything done wrong, he told reporters. I did nothing wrong, he tweeted in all caps. He says his presidency will not end in a resignation as Nixon's did as he was about to be convicted. He left. I don't leave, said Trump toughly. There's a big difference. I don't leave. For now, House Democrats are not impeaching the president, but they're not not impeaching the president. In a timid way, the hearings have already begun. These first hearings in the Judiciary and Intelligence Committees are about the Mueller report. Democrats are testing the waters, testing the nation's possible appetite for impeachment, hoping these hearings will sway the public toward impeachment. The Judiciary Committee hearings got off to a tepid start with testimony from Nixon White House counsel John Dean explaining the similarities between Nixon and Trump. It was a way to do something, while the White House and William Barr continued to stonewall the congressional investigations. It was something to do while the judiciary goes to court for something much meatier, the unredacted Mueller report and all of its underlying evidence. House Democrats are going to court now to enforce the subpoena for those things that have so far been ignored by Attorney General William Barr. The full House also voted Tuesday to authorize the Judiciary Committee to ask a judge for something Barr has refused to request, that the grand jury material from the Mueller investigation be handed over to Congress as well. Grand jury material is secreted by law and only a judge can authorize its release. House Democrats are taking steps to get this before a judge. That's in the Judiciary Committee. Over in the Intelligence Committee, hearings began yesterday on the counterintelligence aspects of the Russia probe. Public hearings so the public can hear what it did not hear in the widely accepted but misleading summary from Trump's hand-picked Attorney General. The Senate Intelligence Panel, meanwhile, questioned Jared Kushner about inconsistencies in his previous testimony to Congress about the Trump Tower Moscow deal. And former White House advisor Hope Hicks, once a close confidant of the president, has agreed to testify behind closed doors for the House Judiciary Committee. She was with the president on Air Force One when he crafted the false statement about the reason for the Trump Tower meeting. She assured the president it would never get out. And she is the first former White House official not to reject a subpoena from the Judiciary Committee. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a cooperative witness. Hicks is fair game to some extent because although she'll likely refuse to answer some questions about the White House through executive privilege, she cannot avoid answering questions about the Trump campaign, of which she was also a part. Hope Hicks will be the first past or present Trump aide to answer the Democrats' questions, including her previous testimony that she had told white lies for the president. She will answer those questions this coming Wednesday. Don't be surprised if we hear reports from Democrats about what she will have said in that session. So hopefully we'll at least have some of that in time for next week's report. 
and we may soon get a look at some of the evidence that supports the abuse of power and obstruction of justice instances assembled in the Mueller report. After an especially tense standoff involving ignored subpoenas and refusals to testify, Attorney General William Barr has now agreed to turn over specific documents requested by the House Judiciary Committee. Those limited documents are being turned over to Congress by the Justice Department in exchange for the Judiciary Committee backing off its plans to hold Barr in contempt over that ignored subpoena. Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler calls these documents Mueller's most important files, key evidence that the special counsel used to assess whether the president and others obstructed justice. And if anything's held back, Nadler says, we will have no choice but to enforce our subpoena in court and consider other remedies. Impeachment, of course, is one of those other remedies. And Chairman Nadler favors that one, even though his party leader in Congress does not. Yet. Still. And we remain haunted by the question, enlisting nearly a dozen instances of obstruction, why didn't Robert Mueller charge the president or even just say that Trump had obstructed justice? Randall Eliason, a criminal law professor at George Washington University, wrote an intriguing argument for, again, giving Mueller the benefit of the doubt. Mueller, he proposes, went to the trouble of investigating and outlining all those times the pursuit of justice was impeded. But Eliason says Mueller knew that if he labeled what he'd found, it would never see the light of day, would never have gotten past Attorney General William Barr. It was Mueller's job to assemble the evidence, not interpret it. Sure, Barr twisted the report, setting into motion misinformation amplified by a president who claimed exoneration. But this way, the report ultimately got out there, made its way into the daylight, A special counsel's report is, by Justice Department regulations, a confidential memo only for the eyes of the U.S. Attorney General. By following the rules that Mueller says don't allow him to charge a sitting president or to publicly accuse anyone of a crime without charging them, Mueller prepared a report with evidence we can see, as opposed to a report tucked away in a drawer by Trump's Attorney General. Had Mueller violated either of those technical rules, William Barr could have used that as a basis for treating the Mueller report like any other internal prosecution memo, in secret. As it is, we have Mueller's report, listing case after case of obstruction and abuse of power. There's a sign now that former National Security Advisor Mike Flynn is not sorry about selling out the U.S. as he had previously told the judge he was. In fact, it appears Flynn is now angling for the pardon dangled before him by Trump's lawyers. Flynn's just hired a Fox News commentator as his new attorney as he's about to be sentenced for lying to the FBI. That Fox TV lawyer, Sidney Powell, says Flynn will continue to cooperate with federal prosecutors, but she has made a paid career out of appearing on Fox News to attack the Mueller investigation. Flynn is now taking a tough stand against the investigation again after apologizing for his betrayal of the United States to a judge who is far from sympathetic. Flynn's latest approach will not set well with the judge who will now be more inclined to throw the book at the former Trump advisor. And if Flynn is convicted while attacking the Mueller probe, that may signal the White House his willingness to accept a presidential pardon. And although the House hearings may have started timidly, they're heating up quickly today. This morning, the House Intelligence Committee issued subpoenas to Mike Flynn and Trump's deputy 2016 campaign chairman Rick Gates for both documents and testimony. Unlike the others being shielded by executive privilege, these two 
have both pleaded guilty to their crimes and have so far been cooperating with investigators. Congress is now getting to the meat of the matter. It would be impossible to ignore Trump's use of the word hereby and declaring a deal had been struck with Mexico as if he were ruling as a king. He had once again created a crisis, threatening rising tariffs on goods from Mexico, tariffs that would strike hardest against the American people, including his own voter base. And then, with the power of a king, he hereby declared that the crisis he had created had been averted with some incredible deal-making. Republicans cheered. They had generally opposed the tariffs, but to quote Florida's Marco Rubio, President Trump has secured an important victory on behalf of the American people. Has he? The truth, as uncovered by the mistrusted press, is that this amazing resolution would not likely do much to stem migration. Because it does not address the supply of people fleeing poverty, and it does not address the demand of Americans who will hire them. And in fact, it is a solution that was agreed upon months ago, long before Trump threatened these tariffs. A manufactured crisis with a manufactured solution. Trump claims that thanks to his tariff threat, Mexico has agreed to deploy its National Guard troops throughout the country, especially at its southern border, where Central Americans enter on their way to the U.S. to escape poverty and violence. But Mexico actually agreed to do that back in March of this year during secret talks with then-Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen, albeit with more troops than it had offered earlier. Trump claims that under his slick new deal, asylum seekers will stay in Mexico while they wait for their cases to come up in U.S. immigration courts. But that's a service that was announced by Kirsten Nielsen five days before Christmas. These are the great concessions Trump got in exchange for dropping his threat to slap heavier taxes on Mexican goods. When word got out that Trump had traded his tariffs for things he'd already been given by Mexico, he claimed there are other parts of the deal that are secret. You can't discredit what you don't know, so the rest of the deal that saved us from the tariffs shall remain secret. Mexico's foreign minister says there is no secret immigration deal. On Tuesday, Trump whipped a document out of his coat pocket that he says contains that secret deal. A Washington Post photographer was able to shoot both sides of the folded document which Trump had held up to the light. The Post blew up the photos and was able to transcribe nearly all of that page. It's about a possible future deal, possible future deal, that would require a vote in the Mexican legislature, so it's anything but a done deal, much less a secret deal. Trump was furious about not getting credit for curbing migration with his tariff threat. He says he will impose the tariffs, still, if Mexico doesn't make a difference, and quickly, a threat that has both Mexico and American business owners on edge. Even the Federal Reserve Board is nervous, ready to lower interest rates quickly to counter the damage of Trump's trade wars. Quoting an American in on the negotiations, the tariff threat is not gone. Everyone very excited about the new deal with Mexico, Trump tweeted with an exclamation point. Even as he fails at immigration policy, the numbers up dramatically since before he took office. The Mexican president is also celebrating a victory, knowing in his heart that that victory hangs by a thread beneath the continuing threat of tariffs. On Monday, Trump announced a $300 billion tariff hike on Chinese goods if President Xi doesn't meet with him later this month in Japan. Threats and temper tantrums, said Nancy Pelosi, are no way to negotiate foreign policy. That's become evident 
in the latest job numbers. The number of jobs created in the month of May was but a mere fraction of the jobs created the month before, only a fraction of what had been expected. New jobs were down the most in industries that depend on exports. In other words, Trump's trade war and tariff threats were the biggest factors preventing the creation of new jobs in the month of May. Only 75,000 new jobs were created in May, a month full of tough tariff talk that shook employers who had plans to take on a few more people. It was a sharp slowdown in hiring because of Trump's trade threats. Factories cut back because their orders for goods had slowed. Stocks and commodities traders worried that the tariffs would slow the nation's economic growth so prices in those markets fell. Whatever positive impact the Republican tax cut of 2017 had on American businesses has now been canceled out. Job growth has stalled and wage increases have slowed again. Economists are worried and American business owners are worried. The threat of Trump tariffs continues to hang over them, too. And this, too, could cost Trump dearly on Election Day, since in the key battleground states of Iowa, Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, 47% of voters think Trump's trade policies are bad for the economy, while only 39% said they are good. Trade through diplomacy over threats is a mantle that Democratic candidates could take up, if they so chose, and a few of them already have. Welcome to the jungle, the jungle of misinformation, as we embark on another presidential race. Control of the White House and the Senate are soon at stake in a world now steeped in lies, propaganda, and fake news. But I don't want to go among mad people, Alice remarked. Oh, you can't help that, said the cat, or you wouldn't have come here. Alice didn't think that proved it at all. Alice clung to her sanity, to logic and reason, in a world governed by misinformation and distraction, in a nonstop circus of drama and cruelty. It wasn't easy, but she got out with her sanity intact. We can too. But it won't be easy, especially when we have to sort the factual news that's called fake from the propaganda that's posing as news. Half of us in the U.S. see fake news as a bigger threat than terrorism according to a new survey by the Pew Research Center. More serious than terrorism. And nearly 70% of us believe that fake news has eroded our confidence in government institutions. It has certainly eroded our trust in the media, even though today's journalists are every bit as good and every bit the same as they were during Watergate. The public believed the media when there were just three networks sharing information gathered by the journalists at the Washington Post, that made ditching Nixon easier than it's been with Trump in this age of media oversaturation and the propaganda on social media and conservative media from Fox News on down. And it is all amplified by a president who again on Sunday called our free press the enemy of the people. If we have learned anything from 2016, let it be that hostile foreign governments will interfere with our democratic process, using propaganda on social media to fire up conservatives and liberals and to further divide this country. It's the age-old principle of divide and conquer, the first part of that mission already accomplished. Russia posted false and inflammatory social media content about Black Lives Matter and guns and immigration in 2016 and the days since. 
Yes, that was all Russia, with help from Americans of all political stripes who ate it up with a soup ladle and liked those posts and shared them to help them spread. The 2020 propaganda is already out there. Most of the leading candidates on the Democratic side of this race have already been targeted with false content, and those lies have already been widely spread. The recent altered video of Nancy Pelosi, slowed to make her seem drunk or incoherent, is just a shrub in this jungle of misinformation. Remember the post three years ago that said Hillary Clinton was dying or really, really sick or losing her mind? Facebook was slow to address the Pelosi fake video. Once it did, it demoted the post to make it harder to find but allowed it to remain on Facebook. Now... A fake video has also been produced featuring Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg bragging about abusing stolen data from his users to see if he'll take that one down. There's been a photoshopped picture of Elizabeth Warren with a blackface doll on her desk. Fake. False sexual allegations about Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg. Separately, of course. All of this with the election still a year and a half away. Facebook has removed more than two and a quarter billion fake accounts this year, but clearly has not stopped much of the fake news. It still circulates. Congress has held hearings and scolded social media executives, but has not taken its own steps to help us clear a path through this jungle of misinformation. Congress has also not passed any legislation to boost our election security because Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell won't allow that vote. The president has refused to act against foreign interference in our elections, has in fact now repeatedly invited it, and Mitch McConnell is on that same page. Despite our own efforts to resist it, that misinformation sometimes gets into our own heads. Salon.com's Bob Seska can think of at least two instances of this, once recently in himself and again this past week in political comedian Bill Maher. Bob? Thank you, Buzz. I get the sense it's unpopular these days to say this among other liberals, but I don't hate Bill Maher. In fact, he tends to be correct more often than he's ridiculous, and when he's right, he possesses a salient insight often missed by non-comedic pundits. For every time I'm repulsed by one of his knee-jerk blurts, I find myself muttering during his show, Damn it! I wish I thought of that. Nevertheless, wow, he seriously whiffed it this week. Before we dig into exactly what happened and why Marr was so ludicrously wrong on CNN the other day, I have no choice but to compliment Donald Trump on something. Actually, it's a backhanded compliment because it's not something he does out of choice, but because he's so mentally feeble. So here goes the compliment. Donald Trump is a wizard when it comes to message discipline. There, I said it. The best politicians in the world are the ones who stick to their message and repeat, repeat, repeat. Bernie Sanders, for example, is also really good at this. See also 1%, though Bernie's message discipline is intentional and strategic. Trump's isn't. Trump's message discipline is all about his defensiveness, his brittle ego, and his inability to grasp and regurgitate complicated details. Consequently, he repeats the same lies over and over because he doesn't know how to say anything else. He's incapable of nuance or thoughtfulness, 
so his worm-infested brain lands on the same phrases like a skipping record or, for younger audiences, an annoying video game character programmed to repeat the same clips of audio over and over and over again. In other words, if Trump had something positive to say, his message discipline might be admirable. Repeating so unfair or 18 angry and conflicted Democrats or enemies of the people comes off as sheer desperation and obsession, not to mention more than a little fear. Fear of being illegitimate, fear of being caught, fear of being exposed for who he is. The remarkable thing is that most of us recognize this as the obvious behavior of a bad liar. Since we've all interacted with liars before, we know it, we recognize it, it's unmistakable. The problem for the rest of us is that his repeated lies and nincompoopery begin to congeal inside of our heads. Indeed, the other day I was discussing the HBO series Chernobyl on my podcast, only to notice that I had referred to nuclear power simply as the nuclear. I had inadvertently repeated Trump's glitched-out word usage here. Embarrassing, but totally unsurprising. I spend so many hours a day soaking in the madness of Trumpland, his words can't help but to cross the blood-brain barrier into my language cortex, and suddenly I'm saying, the nuclear. Perhaps this is Bill Maher's excuse for going on CNN and announcing that Hillary Clinton, quote, committed obstruction of justice by smashing up phones and hard drives. This nonsense is drawn directly from Trump's endless loop lie rotisserie, obviously, which clearly means it's factually inaccurate. I hope it's just a mistake, and Maher doesn't actually believe Clinton committed obstruction of justice because the facts indicate it's a lie pulled directly from Biff's playbook. Let's start with the cell phones. Hillary Clinton did not personally destroy her cell phones. FBI documents from the probe into her email server happen to note Clinton aide Justin Cooper did recall two instances where he destroyed Clinton's old mobile devices by breaking them in half or hitting them with a hammer. Yeah? So? And by the way, yeah, so was also the FBI's response. None of this is unusual. A commonly employed security measure so a thrift store customer doesn't suddenly have access to Hillary's personal information, passwords, PIN numbers, bank account logins, and so forth. As for the hard drives, Hillary definitely did not smash the drives from her homebrew email server. This myth originates from a related story in which the Clinton campaign paid a data destruction firm $194 to dispose of campaign-related hard drives. Again, standard operating procedure. How do I know? Bernie Sanders hired a similar firm for the same service, and Bernie spent three times as much for his hardware destruction, while both campaigns reported the expenditures on their respective FEC filings. As far as Hillary goes, it's a bizarre move from an otherwise savvy candidate trying to engage in alleged obstruction of justice. Whether Hillary's hardware was destroyed or not is almost irrelevant anyway, given that we're talking about email here and, more importantly, recipients of those emails. Hillary presumably sent emails to other people, duh, and those other people might have had copies of Hillary's emails, too. Likewise, servers at ISPs along the way could also have possessed copies. If her mission was to cover her tracks, there were a hell of a lot of tracks left uncovered. Incidentally, the president and his hand-picked worm tongue, Bill Barr, like to say there has to be an underlying crime for obstruction of justice to take place. 
So then what was Hillary's actual crime? What was she trying to cover up? As far as we know, Trump and the Red Hats only want to lock her up because she used a non-governmental email server to conduct some State Department business, just like Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump, Steve Bannon, KT McFarlane, and other Trump administration officials. With Hillary, though, the alleged crime is merely being Hillary. She must be up to something, you know, because she's Hillary. Nope, the weaponization of the Hillary email story didn't require a crime. All the Trumpers needed was the insinuation of a crime, and the Red Hats filled in the blanks themselves based on their irrational decades-long hatred of her. The great irony is, naturally, so many of the Trump administration's crimes are real. Investigated, indicted, and convicted. Trump himself is only at large because he's protected by Bill Barr in the office of the presidency. And yet the lock-her-up chants continue. We all have to do better than Bill Maher did on CNN. All of us, regardless of whether we're on television. One of my biggest concerns with allowing Trump to be president has always been the normalization of his lies, corruption, and incompetence. On my darkest days, I feel like the lies and corruption have been fully normalized, especially now that liberal comedians are repeating those lies on cable news, fueling the red hat movement and legitimizing Trumpism. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope the world recognizes that Bill Maher was absolutely wrong. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh show this afternoon. I'll be back with Bob again on Tuesday. The president officially kicks off his bid for re-election one week from today with a rally in Orlando. Florida remains a key battleground state, and despite its Republican leanings, it is a distinctly purple state that's very much on the fence about re-electing Donald Trump. That's why he's launching his campaign there. He needs help in Florida. But the next really big Trump 2020 campaign rally will be on July 4th, in place of the nation's usual celebration. Personally involved in the detailed planning Trump has moved the fireworks to West Potomac Park, where he will deliver a speech at the Lincoln Memorial. And because the nation's Independence Day celebration is always televised, so too will be Trump's speech as he continues the opening rallies of his 2020 campaign. The televised, taxpayer-funded celebration of the nation's independence has never been a political event, and there are not usually demonstrations and protests for and against the president at this traditionally nonpartisan event. This year, however, will be different. What won't be different, in addition to the misinformation, is the effect of gerrymandering against Democratic voters and most especially against immigrants and minorities. The redrawing of voting district maps for political gain is a tactic Republicans have mastered in this decade gerrymandering our congressional districts even more than some already are, is the apparent reason the Republicans in power have added a citizenship question to the upcoming census. New evidence, as first reported here last week, reveals that the now dead man who came up with the idea of adding the census question had given that exact reason to take gerrymandering to the next level. Trump Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross says the dead guy's writings on the subject had nothing to do with the administration's decision to add the citizenship question. Ross says it was added to shore up the Voting Rights Act, despite a lack of evidence that it would. In a bizarre coincidence, 
That's exactly what the dead guy recommended be said. And the Trump administration has gone to great lengths to make sure that you never see the real reason it has added that question. The dead guy, Thomas B. Hoffeller, had it on his hard drives, and those hard drives are now in the hands of those challenging the sentences question before the United States Supreme Court in about a week. The high court held a hearing on the matter in late April, and it appeared as though the conservative majority was okay with the census question. But since then, three lower courts have struck down the question, and now there's this new evidence. Stay tuned. And this is more than just about votes, of course. The new citizenship question turns what was meant to be a people count into a citizen count. It means whole communities of immigrants won't fill out the census at all, which means they won't be counted, which means their districts will get less federal funding and deny them representation in Congress. If you don't get counted, you don't count. By asserting executive privilege, Trump tried to shield both Attorney General William Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who had refused to turn over the papers explaining the reasons for this new citizenship question. The House Oversight Committee is now holding both men in contempt of court for ignoring subpoenas to provide documents they were supposed to have handed over two months ago. Documents that appear to include the ghost of Thomas B. Hoffeller. Will the full House find Barr and Ross in contempt? Will the two sides succeed in avoiding a court battle, which is where this is currently headed? Barr folded under the threat of the last contempt vote over the Mueller evidence. Will he fold again this time? Stay tuned. It's a challenge even for the pros to keep up with the scandals of the Trump administration. It will be equally challenging for historians, although a lot of the Trump experience centers around just one word, corruption. A dizzying number of top Trump administration officials and cabinet members have resigned in disgrace, starting with his first national security advisor, Mike Flynn, who had foreign entanglements. Then it was the secretaries of health, interior, the VA, and EPA, forced out because of their individual scandals involving money and ego. Trump has lost two national security advisors now, plus a homeland security secretary, a defense secretary, an attorney general, and a secretary of state, and two chiefs of staff, a senior advisor, and a host of others. Next up to the plate, Trump's transportation secretary. The Wall Street Journal reports that Elaine Chow, who also part-owns a company that makes road paving materials, has broken her promise of a year ago to ethics officials to divest herself of her shares in that company, meaning she continues to make money from that company. In no universe should a transportation secretary also own a company that makes roads. Likewise, in no universe should a transportation secretary co-own a company doing business with a mass transit construction firm in the U.S. Chow's family owns the Foremost Group, which in August of 2017 signed a deal with that transit building company based in Japan. Elaine Chow is our government oversight for these three companies, her own, one that builds roads, and another that builds rails and more. Elaine Cho's photo would go very nicely into Wikipedia under conflict of interest. Another fun fact about our transportation secretary is that she just happens to be married to Senate leader Mitch McConnell, which was darned handy when it came time for the Senate to confirm her as our transportation secretary. 
Chow's sister, after all, had donated $400,000 to one of Mitch's super PACs, and her family had donated even more to the Kentucky Republican Party. They have since donated nearly $2 million to Republicans nationwide, just over a million of that going to Mitch McConnell. McConnell's confirmation favor to his wife had already paid off in road-building spades, and still does. As a senator from Kentucky, the senator has his very own liaison inside the Transportation Department put on the payroll by his wife and political partner, Elaine Cho, just as he's running for re-election and building roads. No other state has such a liaison inside the Transportation Department, but Mitch McConnell does, unless his wife loses her gig as Transportation Secretary because of these conflicts of interest, or will she? Stay tuned. Trump's affection for the murderous dictator of North Korea is enduring, to say the least. Kim had his own half-brother murdered when he learned that brother was a source for the CIA. Trump says he would tell Chairman Kim that no such thing would happen on his watch, that he would not allow the CIA to use informants to spy on the Kim regime. He may soon be able to tell Kim that in person. Trump told reporters he's gotten a new letter from Kim, a warm letter, he says, and he's hinting at a third round of nuclear talks. Trump was not only again snuggling up to North Korea's autocrat, he was protecting him by perhaps taking away a valuable tool from our intelligence community whose job it is to keep all of us safe. Trump has also undermined U.S. intelligence by siding with Vladimir Putin on the question of Russian interference in the 2016 election. Jared Kushner is more than just the president's son-in-law. He's an international envoy for the United States. And while he has served in that job, Jared Kushner has continued to co-own a company that does its banking in secret. The Guardian reports that that company, Cadre, gets money from foreign sources through an offshore bank, a Goldman Sachs vehicle in the Cayman Islands that keeps corporate assets hidden from the IRS and tax collectors in other countries. The Guardian also reports that Jared Kushner, who owns a stake in Cadre, got $90 million in foreign funding through that company last year while he was serving as an envoy to nations that may be among his funders. Because of the secrecy, we cannot now know if Kushner has a conflict of interest here because of the secrecy, we have even more reason to wonder. And is Kushner, because of his business dealings with foreign countries, compromised in some way? The Guardian reports that some of Kushner's money came from Saudi Arabia, the government that murdered American journalist Jamal Khashoggi without consequence. Not only has this president refused to punish Saudi Arabia for the journalist's murder, he has abused another emergency declaration to reward it bypassing a bipartisan Congress that was set on punishing the Saudis. Trump's emergency fast-tracks the sale of more American weapons to the Saudis, weapons that can be reverse-engineered to help Saudi Arabia make more of its own. The American defense contractor Raytheon will now work with the Saudi military in building guidance and control systems with circuit boards that have, until this moment, been considered secrets vital to this nation's national security. Raytheon's former vice president, Mark Esper, now serves as secretary to the Army, and his company already has close ties to the Saudis. The Obama administration suspended weapons sales to Saudi Arabia after it was caught intentionally targeting civilians 
with American-made weapons. Democrats and Republicans in Congress are united on stopping this emergency weapons deal from Trump, possibly all the way to a veto override. While Russian sailors sunbathed on the stem of their destroyer, it nearly collided with the USS Chancellorsville, speeding to within 50 feet of the American naval ship. The crew of the American guided missile cruiser, which had been traveling in a straight line in the Philippine Sea, was forced to respond, throwing all engines into full reverse and steering away what appeared to be an inevitable collision. It was more Russia intimidation after Secretary of State Mike Pompeo warned Putin not to interfere in U.S. elections, something President Trump dare not say, for whatever reasons. This latest intimidation occurs also at a time of greater cooperation between the U.S. and China, and it happened just as the Chinese president was arriving in Moscow. It was a message to President Xi that Russia stands with China in shrinking the power of the United States. It was a message to the U.S. as well, a message of intimidation. Russia also has, for the past few years, buzzed our ships and planes with its own warplanes and repeatedly intercepted our aircraft in international airspace. Last week's incident was in international waters and unusually far away from Russia. Zilong Zhu was born in China but served in the U.S. Army until Homeland Security learned that his very real student visa was issued by a phony school. Zhu, who says he did not know the school was fake, got his valid student visa from this fake school run by Homeland Security. It was a sting operation aimed at catching the people who sell fraudulent visas, not the ones who buy them, but Zhu got caught up in it. Oops. He got an honorable discharge from the Army, has never been convicted of any crime, and is now eligible for naturalization. Instead, he is being processed for deportation. Oops. Immigration and Customs Enforcement says it has no idea how many U.S. military veterans it's deported, and that it has not screened 70% of the ones it has deported. ICE claims it did not know it was supposed to carefully screen veterans case by case before deporting them. By one estimate, about 2,000 veterans have been deported. Oops. We learned all this from the watchdog group known as the Government Accountability Office, which reported at the same day that the White House was honoring veterans from D-Day 75 years ago. The GAO reports that ICE was, quote, unaware of the policies. Immigrants have been wearing U.S. military uniforms since the founding of this nation. For nearly a hundred years, they have been made naturalized citizens, either during or after their service, but only if they know to fill out the application. There used to be offices on Army bases to fast-track naturalization papers, but those have closed under the Trump administration. Soldiers who were once naturalized during basic training now have to wait at least six months before applying. It's a year for reserves. The only fast track now for naturalizing immigrant soldiers is for them to go directly into combat. Lately, veterans have been deported over something as minor as petty theft, thrown out of the country they defended, believing the U.S. was their home. Zilong Zhu is being deported after his military service 
even though he has not been convicted of a crime. The veterans of 9-11 remain at the forefront for former Daily Show host John Stewart. Stewart scolded and barked at members of a House subcommittee that had still not extended benefits for those suffering and dying from the toxins they inhaled as heroes on that shocking day. Stewart reminded the lawmakers that those first responders arrived on the scene in five seconds and that they served with dedication, risking and shortening their own lives. They had done their jobs, reminded Stewart, shouting, do yours. Democrats have consistently supported continuing to fund care for the heroes of 9-11. Republicans have balked at the price tag. This time, however, it appears the funding will pass, and soon, and this time, the funding will be permanent. John Stewart saw the trade towers go down from his apartment window, signaling the deaths of 3,000 people. When his show returned nine days later, he began his campaign of never forgetting those heroes by saying, thanks to them, quote, it's democracy. They can't shut that down. We've already won. The Simpsons began as a featurette on The Tracy Ullman Show on Thursday, April 19, 1987, when the fledgling Fox network was only on one night a week. But The Simpsons eventually became its own show in mid-December of 1989, and it's remained on the air long after its parent show was gone. It is now, in fact, the longest-running series on television, now in its 30th year. Although it has not and will not run for that long, Buzz Burbank News and Comment was also once a kind of featurette on another show, radio's nationally syndicated Don and Mike show. With their show more than a decade behind us now, this feature at this newscast, like The Simpsons, also continues as its own standalone program. BBNC has continued for six years now, thanks to an audience incredibly loyal to a guy who does the news, and thanks to the support of my fellow founders of the Realm Network. Happy sixth anniversary, everyone, and welcome to what is now year seven. Coming up... A garbage heap twice as big as Texas. Good news about spam calls and when cows fly. In the final segment, after this. You would make me very happy and proud if you used the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com to get your own personal copy of the Mueller Report or maybe better still get one for a friend or family member and to get all the other great books about our times. And please do all of your shopping there year-round at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click the Amazon logo. You land on your usual Amazon page, which you can then bookmark, please, to replace your old bookmark. Once you've done that, I get a little commission from Amazon for every purchase you make, so it really does help power this free weekly report. Now, on your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title Buzz Burbank News and Comment. If you choose not to use my Amazon link, then please do support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button. Thank you for all of these things, and especially for spreading the word about this effort. How many rules at protecting the environment are being lost in the Trump era? With some help from the law schools of Harvard and Columbia, that's been tallied by the New York Times. 83 of our protections are already gone or on their way out, still in process. 
Nearly two dozen rules curbing air pollution and carbon emissions are being rolled back. Eighteen rules that protect our lands from mining and drilling are vanishing. Thirteen rules that protect natural habitats from new construction are gone. Eight laws that protect wildlife are either extinct or on their way out, and two more are about to join them. In the aftermath of the lead scare in Michigan, the Trump administration is rolling back seven water pollution rules. Another 13 rules protecting us from toxic chemicals and other threats are also being erased. And that brings the number to 83. The number of times the Trump administration has favored business and deregulation over protecting our air and water and the future of this planet. Some of the rollbacks are being contested in court. Business doesn't always want these gifts, doesn't want these rollbacks. The world's 17 biggest car makers, from Ford, GM, and Toyota on down, are telling Trump they liked the Obama rules better and that doing it Trump's way will cut their profits to the point of destabilizing the auto industry for an extended period of time. The auto industry did help create this monster, lobbying for an ease-up in the rules, but it did not expect Trump to go as far as he has, too far in their opinion, alarmingly far, they say. Rules that would have gotten us to nearly 55 miles per gallon by 2025 now call for just 37 miles a gallon, about what it was just before Obama's tougher regulations. A letter from these 17 automakers arrived at the White House on Monday. But it should be noted that these same car makers sent a similar letter to California Governor Gavin Newsom telling him his state's new rules are too tough and that they'd like to see something halfway between Trump's rules and California's rules. Newsom says he's not interested in halfway. The U.S. State Department had completed its annual written report about the threats facing this nation. This year's report says, among other things, that climate change caused by humankind is, quote, possibly catastrophic. When the White House got a copy of this written testimony, it knew exactly what to do. Censor it. Make sure the House Intelligence Committee doesn't get it. Make sure the news media doesn't get it. Make sure the public doesn't get it. Stifle it. The White House banned the State Department from submitting its testimony after State Department officials refused to cut the words possibly catastrophic out of their report. In fact, the White House wanted several pages of that report cut because it contradicts the political claims of this president. The White House also didn't like the State Department's use of the words tipping point. Once again, Trump is ignoring warnings from his senior military officials and his senior intelligence officials in favor of his own theory, which still is, presumably, that climate change is a Chinese hoax. He is again ignoring the scientists at NASA and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The White House wanted most of the scientific research taken out of that report. Quoting one of the authors who's pointing to possible catastrophe sums up the report this way. Climate change effects could undermine important international systems on which the U.S. is critically dependent, such as trade routes, food and energy supplies, the global economy, and domestic stability abroad. In short, wars over food, clean drinking water, and a place to live. It should be noted that a small but growing number of Republicans in Congress are now accepting the science and pushing action on climate change. Their plans, however, involve what they call market-based solutions instead of government regulations. 
64% of Republican voters today also accept the science and believe that climate change is real. But the enemy is also us. Floating between Hawaii and California is the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It's a virtual island made up of plastic bags and fishing gear, about 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic floating on the Blue Pacific. And although all that stuff has coagulated into a virtual island, it is not small. It's twice the size of Texas. It's three times bigger than France. We throw about 8 million metric tons of plastic into our ocean every year. That's the equivalent of dumping a garbage truck full of plastic into the ocean every 60 seconds. Our annual dumping by weight equals nearly 90 aircraft carriers. There are lots of garbage patches in our oceans now. The one between California and Hawaii just happens to be the biggest. All that plastic kills more than a million seabirds every year and more than 100,000 marine mammals. Consider also the microplastics that get into fish and other marine life. By 2050, by item count, there'll be more plastic in the ocean than fish. Thanks to CNN.com and its six sources for this hopefully motivating information, we need to drastically cut our use of plastic immediately and recycle what we are forced to use. And we need to clean up after ourselves. A grocery store in Vancouver has come up with a novel way to get people to stop using plastic shopping bags. The five cents per plastic bag surcharge didn't work. People used as many bags as they always had and just paid the extra nickels. So now the store is trying to shame and embarrass people into using reusable bags instead. So rather than put its own logo on its plastic bags, the East West Market had them printed up with the names of fake businesses for which you might not want to advertise your patronage. One plastic bag reads, Into the Weird Adult Video Emporium. Another reads, Dr. Tao's Wart Ointment Wholesale. And they still cost five cents apiece. Suddenly, sales of the reusable canvas bags with the East-West Market trademark were up. The number of plastic bags going out the door likewise dropped. But some customers have actually been collecting the embarrassing bags as novelty items. So now the manager's thinking about printing these bogus logos on some of his canvas bags as well. Before these past seven days get away from us, we cannot overlook Trump's take on astronomy and his inability to stick to his own story. This is about the moon. In his first year in office, Trump signed a directive for NASA to return to the moon. But that was two years ago, and Trump seems to have forgotten that directive because he now says going to the moon is so 50 years ago. He also seems to have forgotten that as recently as this spring, his own vice president gave a big speech saying Trump is giving NASA just five years to get back to the moon. Suddenly, Trump is scolding NASA for even thinking about going back to the moon. So does NASA now ignore his written directive and follow his tweeted directive or follow Vice President Pence or what? Trump's most recently tweeted declaration says, instead of the moon, we should focus on going to Mars. Only he said it like this, quote, 
NASA should not be talking about going to the moon. We did that 50 years ago. They should be focused on the much bigger things we are doing, including Mars, in parentheses, of which the moon is a part. To repeat, the president said Mars, of which the moon is a part. He's fine. Everything's fine. The big news is we're going to Mars. We may or may not stop at the moon on the way. Even its spinning simulators don't make NASA folk this dizzy. We also learned this week that soon you'll be able to fly up to the International Space Station on a Boeing or a SpaceX for about 50 million bucks. And that does not include the 18 grand an hour for the astronauts who will take you there, nor does it cover your baggage fee, which is $18,000 per kilogram. Never mind the kilograms, it's $18,000. And your $50 million also does not cover your food or storage space or your own lodging, which runs about thirty-five grand a night. So this is for companies that want to do research in space or for very rich people who just want to go. We cannot, as Aerosmith suggested, eat the rich, but we will be shooting them into space. From here on Earth, we can see the planet Jupiter, its biggest and brightest appearances of the year, as we are closest to it this time of year. On a clear night, we'll also be able to see four of Jupiter's 79 moons. The biggest one is a rock covered in ice, and it's bigger than the planet Mercury. With binoculars, you may also be able to see Jupiter's great red spot. A great red spot, of course, should be checked. Face west-southwest at 11.30 p.m. for the best view. The show starts at dusk, though, and runs all night and for the next couple of weeks. It's also here in mid-June that Mars and Mercury appear very close together just after sunset. Happy sky watching on a warm summer night. Most nights, you should already be asleep by 11.30, probably sooner. A new study out this week says sleeping longer decreases our risk of heart disease and obesity. It found that people who sleep longer have fewer cravings for sugar and salt and take in fewer calories in the process. Another study out this week reminded us to avoid blue light at night, not to fall asleep with a light, a TV, or any other device on. And yet another study showed that high school students who started classes 70 minutes later in the morning were getting an extra 48 minutes of sleep, which adds up quickly to a lot more sleep. Previous studies have shown that sleeping is actually a vital part of the learning process. More sleep is not the only good news for avoiding death from heart disease. So is the Affordable Care Act. A new study from the University of Pennsylvania finds that states' expansions of Medicaid through the ACA, have cut the number of heart disease deaths. That's about 2,000 middle-aged Americans who are alive today but would not be were it not for Obamacare, according to this research. We got two pieces of what appears to be goodish news this week about those spam calls we get on our cell phones. The FCC is not requiring this, but it has made it easier for your carrier to block spam calls on your behalf. The FCC also made it easier for the cell providers to enroll everyone in this automatically so no one has to sign up for it. The FCC did not say that the service had to be provided at no additional cost and higher phone bills are reasonably expected. There are also concerns that, say, AT&T 
could, if it wanted to, classify any calls to you from, say, Verizon as spam or anyone else AT&T might particularly want to squelch. But five billion robocalls later, the government has finally sort of swung into action. If or when the cell companies actually provide these services is now up to them. AT&T, Verizon, and T-Mobile already provide free software for blocking spam. Sprint charges for that service. Apple, meanwhile, is rolling out a new iPhone operating system this fall or late this summer that silences robocalls, sending them straight to voicemail. Most spammers don't leave messages. This will not, of course, be helpful to small business owners who thrive on unknown callers, but there are still more solutions on the way. Dr. John was the voice of New Orleans-style R&B rock. He's passed at 77 after a heart attack. He was in a Blues Brothers movie and one made by Martin Scorsese. He also appeared regularly on HBO's Treme. Some of Dr. John's earliest studio time was time left unused by Sonny and Cher. He was often described as flamboyant, a critic back in the day writing, Sunglasses and radiant colors, feathers and plumes, bones and beads around his neck, the crusty blues voice rich in dialect, and then the man himself in motion, scattering glitter to the crowds, pumping the keyboard, a human carnival to behold. Although it hasn't made as much money as expected, The Secret Life of Pets 2 opened with $47 million in ticket sales, making it this week's top movie in North America. Dark Phoenix is in second place with $33 million, Aladdin and Godzilla third and fourth respectively, and the highly recommended Rocket Man in fifth. Find tickets, showtimes, and more through the Fandango link at buzzburbank.com. And if the theater has one of those claw machines, you might check there might be a kid inside. Firefighters in Gloucester Township, New Jersey this week had to rescue yet another toddler who'd crawled inside yet another machine and into a puddle of toys. It seems to happen somewhere a couple of times each year. In Alberta, Canada, a tourist, meanwhile, got into a safe. This is worldwide news because experts have tried for 40 years to get into a safe from the now-defunct Brunswick Hotel, a safe that's been on display but never opened for four decades. The Vermilion Heritage Museum had called the manufacturer. They had hired blacksmiths. They had reached out to former hotel employees. The manager doesn't remember the combination. Having failed at all those things, the museum started letting its visitors take a crack at safe cracking. They all failed, too until the Mills family from Alberta went on a camping trip that put them near the museum. And the dad, Stephen Mills, knelt down, gave the dial a few spins, and the impenetrable safe instantly popped open. For the better part of a half century, no one could open this safe. Stephen did in 30 seconds on his first try. We beat the code, we beat the code, shouted his kids. I'm buying a lottery ticket, declared Stephen. Museum officials jotted down the combination but planned to have the lock permanently disabled so the safe can never be locked again. To no one's surprise, there was nothing interesting or valuable inside the safe. But Stephen Mills' first try opening of that uncrackable safe is now the stuff of legend. If you have a lot of documents to shred and you're anywhere near San Diego, get thee to SDCCU Stadium Saturday 
for the Super Shred event. SDCCU stands for San Diego County Credit Union, and it's out to break the Guinness Book World Record for shredding the most pounds of paper. The existing record was set by that same credit union last year, nearly 899,000 pounds in eight hours. The organization also set the 24-hour shredding record in 2017. So, seriously, they're going to need a lot of paper. A Guinness World Record was set in Germany this week on a lawnmower. A Honda prototype got from zero to 100 miles per hour in 6.9 seconds and mowed grass as it went. Those are the rules of the contest. The fastest lawnmower that actually cuts the grass. Do not try this with your lawnmower or your car. Your smartphone will be in the shop all week. Here, use this old flip phone in the meantime. Could you function for a week without your smartphone? Would having a 1990s flip phone drive you insane? A company in Utah has an offer that is not for the faint of heart. It's offering a thousand bucks to just one person in its service area who will give up their smartphone for a full seven days and just use a flip phone instead. The company, Frontier Bundle, says the more addicted you are to games and social media, the better. And it says if you have an active online presence, bonus points for continuing to post vlogs with your flip phone. Since the volunteer will also have to give up a lot of helpful apps, the company is also providing, besides the flip phone, a printed road map, a pocket-sized phone book with a pen, and a couple of CDs, if you can find a player handy. To touch that cat, he needed a $10 pole. A sport fisherman in Tennessee picked up a $10 fishing pole at Walmart, and after a two-hour struggle used that rod and reel and some 10-pound test line to pull in a catfish. Big catfish. 55 pounds of catfish with a $10 pole. Third alligator on the loose in a month. And we're not talking about Florida. We're talking about Steeltown, Pittsburgh, PA. Public safety officials there have responded to three gator calls in the past 30 days, capturing alligators from two and a half feet to five feet in length. Officials say the gator sightings appear to be unrelated. What the gators do have in common, oddly enough, is Pittsburgh. And finally, a mighty gust of wind rushed through Montgomery, Alabama this week, tearing a giant inflatable cow from its moorings at one of the probably many Chick-fil-A's in Alabama. Freed by the wind, it floated on the wind down the street. In an age of propaganda and shocking developments, the phrase, when pigs fly, has lost a bit of its punch. But when cows fly, you have our attention. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for shopping my sponsors and that PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank News and Comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by the Realm Network.